Reading this morning comes from Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long look on me and answer, Lord my God? Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. That's Don Williams. He's going to graduate from Duke Divinity School in a couple months. And in just a couple weeks, we're going to have a chance to recommend him for ordination in the United Methodist Church. And uh, I thought as, as a present back to all of you, if you can't afford that book I was talking about earlier, Don will give you the money. <laughs> Happy graduation, brother. I had just finished lunch, it was about five years ago, I just finished lunch with a colleague. We had Mexican food in Christiansburg, Virginia. It was tasty. We were out front of the restaurant saying our goodbyes, doing a final catch-up thing, and I got a call from my mom. In all my 39 years, I have heard my mom frantic one time, it was on this phone call. My mother said to me, Rob... We think that Matthew has taken his life. Matthew Leon is my nephew. He's the oldest nephew, uh, oldest grandchild in the family. Um, Valedictorian of his class. Out of a possible 36 on his ACT, Matt got a 36. Out of a possible 1,600 on his SAT, the boy got a 1,600. First time he got a 1,590. Took it again. (laughs) I love it. He went to Vanderbilt University, major in engineering. Got home from his first year of school, and he got his grades, and they weren't at the level that he expected of himself. By the time my dad called to let us know that Matt was gone, I was at home by this point, and I was sitting on the front porch of my parsonage, and I was holding Brock, who was just a baby, probably a little bit too tight. And my dad kept this refrain, he just, on the phone, he kept saying, he kept saying, Oh God, I don't understand. Oh God, I don't understand. I don't understand. 
I think those are the words. That's the sentiment most of us have when we find out that someone in our lives has, has taken their life. That's how most of us feel about suicide. Why in the world would somebody who, who has the gift of life choose to give it up when this world is so filled with hope and opportunity? The idea of suicide is something we rarely address in our society, almost never in our churches, but we're going to talk about it today. Two weeks ago, a member of one of our support groups here at Ebenezer Church chose to take his own life. Last weekend, in something I can't fit inside of my brain, a sixth grader at a local school took his own life. For these reasons, I've elected to take a week off from our Be the Change series to let our sixth graders at Ebenezer Church and, and all of our children at Ebenezer Church and all the children of God at Ebenezer Church know that there is hope in this world. I want to share some numbers with you. In 2017, 44,965 Americans took their own lives. The demographic most likely to complete suicide are white men ages 46 to 65. The second most likely demographic are women and men above the age of 85. Women are four times more likely to attempt suicide than men. Men are three times more likely to complete suicide than women. The leading cause for suicide is severe depression. I want to accomplish two things with you today. The first thing that I want to accomplish with you is I want us to better understand what would bring someone to the place that they would make a decision like that so that in our hours of need we can find help and in others' hours of need we can be the help they need. And secondly today, I want to speak some words of healing to families who, like mine, have lost a loved one to suicide. Of all the stuff that I know about taking our own lives, the, the, the number that scares me the most is that at any given time, 10% of people in the United States of America are contemplating at least loosely the prospect of suicide. <coughs> and you say, Pastor, that's horrible. I don't understand that. How, how could people, especially people who believe in God, get to that point? Moses, he just let God's people out of Egypt, by the power of God, he'd conquered the most powerful man in the world and forced him to let go of his free labor. Moses was leading God's people through the wilderness towards the promised land when the people started to grumble and factions began to emerge and certain factions elected new leadership. And Moses looks at God and says, if this is the way it's going to be in Numbers chapter 11, Moses says, please kill me now. We heard Don read this morning the psalm of complaint, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you allow my enemies to triumph over me? David says in verse 3, If this is the way it's going to be, take my life. Let me sleep in death. Elijah. Elijah had just had the greatest victory of his prophetic career. By the power of God, he had done away with 400 prophets of the false god Baal. Destroyed them, decimated them. And because of his great victory, Queen Jezebel put a price on Elijah's head. Elijah had, therefore, to run into the wilderness 
He was all alone. In the first Kings chapter 19, he prays for God to kill him. Job? Job has everything taken from him except his wife, which I really don't know if you read the story, leaving her was a great blessing. Because she said to him, Job, you need to curse God and die. Bob, has your wife ever said that to you? No? She's a keeper. Job lost everything. Job lost everything. And when his wife says he should curse God and die, Job said, I would rather be strangled to death than live one more moment in this body. Even the folks who are closest to God struggle mightily at times in our lives. So it should be no shock that some of the folks we know struggle with suicidal thoughts. And we ask the question, what creates this phenomenon? Psychology Today says that one of the symptoms of severe depression that causes people to move towards suicide is a loss of hope. The idea that things are bad and they're going to be worse tomorrow and they're not going to get better. It's like, it's like tunnel vision. All they can see is the pain and difficulty of the present moment. I come to believe it's never going to get better. Another thought often displayed by people who attempt or complete suicide is this belief that the world would be better off without them. I read a a series of notes left behind by people who had taken their own lives this week. One of those notes was a father who said to his family, I'm doing this for you. It'll be better for you if I go. It'll be better for my kids. What that man didn't come to understand, what he didn't know is the damage he was going to do to his family when they found out why he died. They didn't think about what, he didn't think about what Father's Day was going to feel like. He didn't realize that someone who completes suicide sentences their family to a 65% greater likelihood of attempting suicide. The belief that there is no hope, that the world would be better without us, that things are never going to get better. These are beliefs that inspire good people to make bad decisions. A lack of hope and a failure to see our own worth. These come face to face with something that a man named Frederick Beekner once wrote about Jesus. He said, The resurrection of Jesus Christ means the worst thing is never the last thing. I told you that story about Moses. He prayed for God to take his life. God does not honor Moses' request. Instead, God dispatches those who had formed factions against Moses. Moses becomes the greatest leader in the Old Testament. He leads God's people effectively through the wilderness to the promised land. And before he draws his last breath, he sees A land that is flowing with milk and honey. And all of this happened after Moses' darkest hour because the worst thing is never the last thing. David wrote Psalm 13 when he was a relatively young man. 
Saul was in hot pursuit. How long, O Lord, will you let my enemies triumph over me? Eventually, David's enemies don't triumph over him anymore. Eventually, Saul is put down. David rises to power. He unites all of Israel. Eventually, he's going to sire a young son named Solomon. David and Solomon collectively will rule Israel for a hundred years. Israel will never be as successful before or since as it was in that hundred year span under their leadership. Not only David's greatest days, but the greatest days of his country came after David's darkest hour. The worst thing is never the last thing. Elijah complained to God in the wilderness that now he had followed God faithfully, but now he was all alone. And God sent him a young man named Elisha that he could tutor and love and befriend. Eventually, Elijah is taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. All of this happened after his darkest moment because the worst thing is never the last thing. Job. Job finds his family restored to him, his wealth restored to him, and we find that Job is more blessed in the end than in the beginning. The worst thing is never the last thing. What is the point? Here it is. God's people are always people of hope. Because for us, the worst thing is never the last thing. I wonder if you remember that there was a case of suicide in the New Testament. You remember that? Judas Iscariot, after he betrays Jesus, Judas elects to take his own life that very night. Have you ever asked yourself, what would have happened if Judas would have just waited three days? If he'd waited three days, what would have happened if, if Judas knelt before the resurrected Christ? What would have happened? You know what would have happened. Jesus would have forgiven him. That's what Jesus does. The two greatest misfits in the New Testament are Peter and Paul. Peter turns his back on his best friend in his greatest hour of need. Paul bears witness to the murder of the first martyr of the Christian church. And they also happen to be the two men that transformed the world by the building of the kingdom of God in the first century. Imagine what Judas Iscariot would have done for God's kingdom if he'd have just waited three days. There are voices at times that we can hear, voices that tell us that things aren't going to be okay, voices that tell us the world would be better off without us. But this is not God's voice. God's voice, Jesus' voice says this, the thief comes to steal and to kill, to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come so you could have life. You may think I say this too much. But the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big idea of the Bible, boils down to three truths. 
you are loved and there's nothing you can do about it. God has given you a place to belong and it's right here in Christ's church and God has created you for a purpose. God walks with us in tough times. We are always a people of hope and God always has a purpose for our lives and in our lowest moments we need to remember that our darkest hours are often when God does God's greatest work because the worst thing is never the last thing. So why do people get to the point that they take their own lives? They lose hope. And in those moments, it is our task to remind ourselves and our loved ones that our story is a story of hope, a story of possibility. Abraham wanted a child. David stood before a giant. Mary approached a tomb. They never saw hope coming. But that's exactly what God showed up with because our God always shows up with hope. And our task isn't simply to remind ourselves and others that there is hope. Our task is to remind ourselves and others that God calls us as part of our purpose to be hope in the lives of those around us. I want to spend a few moments talking to the families who, like mine, have had their hearts touched by suicide. When we're close to someone who takes their own life, one of the things we feel is guilt. When I found out that my nephew was dead, I um, felt immediately guilty. Why didn't I do something? Why didn't I call him that morning? My sister and brother-in-law who were in worship with us just last week was their son. And I know that they wrestle with guilt too. Why didn't we tell this boy more often that he was more important than his stupid grades? What if we'd loved him more completely? Though I've never known a boy who was more loved and cherished than that child was. None of us are perfect. None of us can see the future. We didn't know. We couldn't know. And here's what all that means. And it's taken me years to get here. I am not responsible for Matthew's death. If your family has been touched by suicide, I want you to know this, you are not responsible for that person's death. The other thing that I feel sometimes, and it's weird that I could feel guilt and anger at the same time, but I do, I get angry at Matt sometimes, I do. It's part of the process of grieving someone in your family who's taken their life. I want to... I want to grab Matt, maybe by the neck. I want to tell him how beautiful he is. I want to tell him how much hope there is for the future and how much possibility there is in him. But Matt couldn't see past that moment. And it's not my fault. But I can, we can learn from this. 
I can tell everyone I talk to every week that they are beautiful and beloved. I can tell them time and time again that God loves them, that there's a place where they belong and that they have purpose. I can do everything I can to try and be light in the darkness. And so can you. I put our Be the Change series on the hold this week. But I think this issue emphasizes the importance of the holy work that we're doing together. It's healthy for us to have differences of policies and issues as long as we recognize that there is something greater which unites us, that the people around us need light and they need hope and the church of Jesus Christ exists to give it to them. And final note before I move into closing thoughts. One question that families who uh, I walk with that are wrestling with a suicide of a loved one, one, one issue that they, they face is, is the question of whether or not their loved one who has taken their own life can go to heaven. You see, there were churches for a long time, a number of churches for a number of years that taught that you couldn't take your own life and go to heaven. And I, I think I understand why they taught those things. I, I think it came from a, a desire to be faithful. I believe the underlying intent was to try and scare people away from taking their own lives. But I think there are better reasons than being afraid of hell to avoid suicide. Like the fact that we are a people of hope. That our story bears this out time and time again. There is purpose for your life and my life. And in our darkest moments, the God of hope walks closely with us. So what then happens when a child of God can't imagine the end to the pain? What happens when they see their hope or purpose diminished or absent? And they take their own lives. Will God forever punish them because of their fears? Because of their one mistake? I don't believe that. In fact, Scripture paints the picture of a God who loves the oppressed. A God who is present for those who are hurting. I think God said to Matthew on that terrible day, I think God said, I am so disappointed in you, boy. There was so much left for you to do. I was going to make amazing things out of your life. And then I think God said, but come here. I have always loved you and I always will. Which one of us, if our child was in severe anguish, would say, I'm sorry, I won't be there for you anymore? Of course not. We would wrap our arms around them and tell them that they are our own and that we love them. And I think that's exactly what God does. We who remain after the death of a loved one, we can feel great pain. But we are a people of hope and purpose. We have been given the gift of one another. Living reminders in one another's lives that we are not alone and that God is with us in every moment. We do not walk alone. For those of you who have experienced the pain of loss, I want you to hear what the Scriptures tell us. For they tell us that one day our mourning will turn to dancing. And then some bright morning, our sorrow will turn to joy. Sixth grade. 
I think our community is hurting today. And I don't think that we always know what to do. And so I want to close with our time here by telling you about some resources that are available for you or for somebody in your life who's struggling to find hope. The first thing I want you to know is that Ebenezer Church is a place where hope grows. And I want to challenge our small groups this week to have a brief conversation about how we can be better at being hope to people around us. And after the worship service today, uh, in both of these rooms off the front of the sanctuary, there's going to be a pastor. If you'd like to, to talk or pray about your life or somebody in your life, I'm going to be here for you. There are some wonderful counseling resources in our local community. We've made those available for you on your bulletin today. We're going to post them on the web for those of you watching online. And I want to, I want to invite you with my last word here to join me in prayer. To pray for the families that are hurting today. To pray for people who are experiencing the darkness of depression, the loss of hope. But also, to pray that our God will help us be light in the lives of those with whom we are so blessed to share this wonderful gift called life. Church, will you pray with me? Your scriptures tell us, O God, that as you stood before a tomb of one of your friends, and as his sister looked on you turned and you said to Martha, you think life's about the air in your lungs? You think it's about the blood in your veins? I am resurrection. I am life. The one who believes in me, though they were dead, they shall live. And he who lives and believes in me will never truly die. Lord, we pray for those families that are hurting today. Because of the loss of someone that's close to them. We pray you would grant them visions of resurrection. That you would hasten the day that their mourning turns to dancing and their sorrow is transformed into joy. We pray for them today. We lift up the people around us every day. They're around us. Maybe in this room. Certainly in this room. Who are struggling to find hope and purpose. Gracious God, I pray you would help them remember that the worst thing is never the last thing. And that you are a God that brings light out of the deepest darkness. I pray that you would help us to reach out to those who are in need, that you would help them to reach out. I pray that you would be there for those who are hurting today. 
Lord, we also pray that you would you would help us be light in darkness. That you would inspire us to take the message of the Bible into the lives of those around us, to tell them nothing more than this simple truth that they are loved and there's a place for them to belong and that God has given them purpose. Help us to know how much it matters to reach out to those around us. We pray these things in your name as together we speak the words that you taught us so long ago saying Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.